Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today we are going to be hearing from songwriter, performer, and groundbreaking producer, Gail Davies. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org library. Hello and welcome back everybody. This is an exciting episode. We are going to be playing for you our 2019 interview with the great and wonderful and very warm lady named Gail Davies. And it was a delight to uh, meet her and document some of her important contributions to the music industry, some of which I think are unsung for sure. So hopefully this podcast will spread some light and uh, uh, continue her great legacy as a, a wonderful contributor to the music industry. Well, you know, one of the things that just um, I grew up listening to country music along with about a uh, hundred different other styles of music. And I remember her song um, Bucket to the South. And when her album, I think around 1978 or 79 came out, The Game, I was really enthralled. Even as a young kid, I remember thinking, wow, there's a lot of talent in these grooves. And to meet the lady who actually produced and recorded that uh, album was really a, a thrill for me. So it's equally thrilling to share her story with you today. And that's exactly what we're hoping to do. Uh, Legendary is right. I mean, she has just really paved the way for uh, a lot of women in the music industry, both songwriting as well as producing. Um, and so we're going to start off with listening a little bit about just her upbringing and uh, kind of how she got into the industry and her love of music. So here is Gail Davies. Gail, thank you so much for taking time to be with us. I really yeah. appreciate it. It's my pleasure. There's a lot of great stories about your beginnings, um, <laughs> some of which have become songs, thinking yeah. about your grandmother and things right. like that. And I would love to hear your thoughts about where your passion and how your passion for music developed. Well, um, my father was a uh, singer-songwriter. He performed um, on the Louisiana Hayride. Tex Dickerson was his performing name. And um, he and my mom split when I was very young, about four, and she moved up to, from Oklahoma up to Washington State and remarried my stepfather. And he was a, a wonderful, wonderful man. He adopted us, so he was the only father I ever knew, Darby Davies. And he bought, uh, my mother loved music. And she sang too, her whole family sang, you know, traditional uh, folk kind of music. So she, um, she was kind of lonely, lonely and homesick up in Washington State, so he found a jukebox in an old secondhand store and he bought it. And uh, they filled it with music, everything from Hank Snow to Nat King Cole, Ella Fitzgerald, Patsy Cline, a lot of Webb Pierce. And so I grew, my, my two brothers, and then I had a half-brother, and I all grew up listening to music and playing. My older brother uh, was a very talented songwriter. My younger brother, Jimmy, was a great singer, wonderful singer. So everybody sang. We sang three-part harmony when we were little, tiny kids in elementary school. We were singing 
harmony together. It's really neat. Tell us about your grandmother. My grandmother was Frances Marion Wicker Whitten, and uh, she was uh, of Irish descent, hilarious, wonderful person to be around, uh, just encouraged me all the time. She was a lovely woman. And uh, she taught me the first song I ever learned to sing, which was called the Fox Hunt Song. And later, when she passed away, I wrote Grandma's song and, and put, I had, my mother had made a tape before my grandma died of her actually singing the Fox Hunt Song. And, you know, it's like, come a loo, come a loo, come high, low, come down the merry stream. Come a ram tam tam and a dippy dippy dial. Hear the rather bow wow wow the bugle horn a big by diddle in the hidey ho. Through the woods we're gonna roam, boys, through the woods we're gonna roam. And I, and she's singing it. It sounds like this old Appalachian mountain radio. And then I took it and spliced it on the front of the song I wrote in tribute to her called Grandma's Song. So, yeah, she was fantastic. She was, she made my life worth living. Mm. Whenever I count the blessings in my, my life, she's at the top of the list. That's beautiful. That's really neat. Where did she grow up? Uh, she was born in Arkansas, Roston, Arkansas, and married my grandfather when she was 15 and had a child right away. So she and my aunt Ina kind of grew up together and made quilts. In fact, I'm getting ready to quilt a top sheet that she made 50-something years ago. What are some of your favorite <laughs> memories of her? Well, um, she always had on a dress, like a king, you know, like a gingham, the gingham kind of dress. And I remember always being able to run into her dress if I was crying, wipe my tears, my nose was running, blow my nose. You know, that dress, <laughs> my grandma's dress was just like always there. And I think about that with my grandson now, who's five years old, because sometimes his nose will be running, and he'll just come over and he'll go, you know, my nose, and I just take my shirt and wipe his nose, and I think about my grandma Witten. That's really cool. <laughs> and while we're talking about family members, I'd love to talk a little bit about your, your brother Ron. Yes, my older brother was a fantastic singer-songwriter. He wrote It Ain't Easy, which was the title of a, of a Three Dog Night album, and was later picked up by David Bowie on his Ziggy Stardust album. His songs have been cut by everybody from Joe Cocker to Maria Muldaur. Long Hard Climb was a song that he wrote, which was the title of the Helen Reddy um, album, platinum-selling album. He just, you know, everybody recorded his stuff, you know, Detroit, um, uh, Dave Edmonds. I mean, I just can't even think of all the names. It's really neat. Yeah, so he did, he start, did he start young? Writing yes, songs? he started writing songs when he was 11, and uh, as did my son, you know. Uh, Ronnie picked up a guitar. My, our, our dad, Darby, bought him a, a guitar when he was 11 years old. And within weeks, he was playing. I mean, really playing, you know, like. And we were singing Everly Brothers songs together. And um, him and my brother Jim and I had been in a couple of talent contests. Um, one of them I talk about in my book, where... My brother Jimmy talked me into getting on a roller coaster ride, or a, one of those spinning things, and we went out on stage and I got sick and threw up in front of the whole audience. So, yeah, it wasn't a very... And my older brother was furious. Ronnie was furious. But he was very exacting. Everything had to be just perfect. And he was, you know, very particular about his songs, his lyrics, progressions. He was a huge fan of, like, Blind Lennon Jefferson and Andre Segovia. You know, he was, he could play classical guitar, he could play low-down blues. He was marvelous. He was just the best big brother you could possibly want to look up to. 
And I noticed, thanks to you, um, you put together a tribute album of some of his songs and going through all of his material, did any one or two songs come up to you as being things that you're particularly fond of? Well, there's one song that uh, we did called Steal Across the Border, and it was on a Joan Baez album. Uh, she had recorded it that Ronnie wrote when he was very young, and we always sang it together as a duet. And so after he passed away, when I was going through the songs, I said, you know, I, I want to sing on this one. So posthumously, I put my voice on that song, and we're singing it together on his tribute album, which is everyone came to participate. Vince Gill, John Prine, Dolly Parton, Alison Krauss, Mandy Barnett, Crystal Gale. They all came and, and were part of this project to keep his music alive. So I'm very proud of that. It's called Unsung Hero, a tribute to Ron, the music of Ron Davies. Fantastic. I can't wait to hear it. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I know, you know, I, I know of his work, and I, it's neat to hear some of the history behind all that great music that he provided us. It's great. And it, it also, um, it, it kind of reminded me of um, your early days, too. It, 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 your dad gave him a guitar. How did you get your first guitar? Yeah, that was tough. I got a doll. It's hard to play a doll. Uh, <laughs> and I wasn't into dolls. I was very much a tomboy. Uh, and... Uh, it wasn't until I, I went through a really bad first marriage with a with I was married. My husband didn't think he was, and um, he was, but you know, not in his actions. And so after five years, we broke up. And I uh, was living in Hollywood, and I was singing in a rock band and drinking too much. And it was you know it was that time period, and I was losing my voice. So I went to a doctor, and he said, "You're going to have to quit singing." for at least six months or have your nodes shaved. So I disbanded my group and um, I was working as a seamstress. You know, I was making wedding dresses and bridesmaids dresses and clothes for Vegas showgirls to survive. And a friend of my brother said, well, you know, you should get a guitar and learn to play guitar. And a friend of Ronnie's name, Scott McDonald, who's still up in Washington State, one of my dearest, dearest friends, taught me how to play guitar. And uh, I went to a pawn shop and picked up a Martin D2861 Martin for $350 with the case. If you can believe it, back in the day, this would be like 1969, you know, 70s, 71. Um, and I just started writing songs. And within a year, I had written songs that are still, you know, like around. Someone is looking for someone like you, uh, which has been translated into seven languages. So, um, yeah, it's, it came very quickly, very fast. I was very, very uh, pleased. And that was it. I was off. <laughs> well, I know that it, it became more formal, you know, when you are under contract and asked to write certain songs. But in the, in the beginning, where did some of the inspiration come from? Uh, a lot. Just, you know, it, living in Hollywood, I just recently saw the uh, Echoes in the Canyon you know, about the whole Laurel Canyon situation back in the time when I was there. And I, I just got kind of weepy and sad just looking at all the old people that I knew, and we're all old now, I'm 71, and, you know, I was looking at David Crosby and Nash and all those guys and going, yeah, we've, you know, we've, but at least we're here, you know, we're still here. Uh, all of that, the, Hollywood and L.A. was just a, uh, an inspirational place to be. I used to sing, be the singer for a group called the Midnight Band at the Troubadour. And we would close out every Saturday night. 
after you know all the bands had played, Tom Petty would come and play for free with the Heartbreakers just to try to get attention. Uh, Tom Waits, you know, would get up and read his poetry. Um, he didn't have a record deal. We were all just trying to get something going, and uh, everybody around me was inspirational, especially my brother Ron. And then I I met Roger Miller and went on tour on the road with Roger, and that was inspiring as well. I bet it was. It was. It was quite an experience. He's on my notes. He's one of my heroes. I would love to hear yeah. your, your thoughts about him. Well, <laughs> it was that time, you know, when everybody was doing a lot of drugs. There was a lot of craziness going on. It was like the very early 70s. Um, but Roger was just, he was a genius. And in my book, I talk about if I teach a workshop for writers, songwriters, I always say, write in your own language. And I don't mean English. I mean in your own way of saying things. You know, like you can't roller skate in a buffalo herd. You know, I mean, who would think to write that? That is a Roger Miller language. Um, and, and people, you know, they tend to write more generic because they just want to get songs recorded and make some money and blah, blah, blah. But when you write from your heart, you have a uniqueness that sets Guy Clark apart, apart from, you know, someone else, you know, so that you are identifiable. We've lost a lot of that, I think, and uh, that makes me kind of sad. But anyway, Roger was, um, he was amazing to work with. And we didn't work together that long. He was kind of, I was filling in for a background singer. He and I were dating and his background singer quit. And he called and said, would you fill in for a couple of weeks till I find someone else? And weeks turned into months, and pretty soon he was talking about us being the next Dolly Parton in Porter Wagner. And I was going, nah, I don't want to be your background singer. I don't want to be your girl singer. I want to do what you're doing. You know, I want to write songs and get them recorded and, and have my own, you know, records. Um, so eventually, you know, I left the band. And uh, we remained friends until he died. I mean, we're still, we were still good friends. Mm. I loved Roger. Yeah, I, you know, I met um, Mr. Loudermilk, who who told me, you know, some capers about Roger. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, people aren't even... short on Roger Miller stories. No, the, well, you know, one of my favorite. favorite. Well, I remember we were riding on a plane to a gig, and and I, and I was sitting next to him, and he. And the sun was coming up, and he opened up the blinds, and then he slammed it shut, and he goes, God's coming, and he's got his brights on. <laughs> you know, he always had a joke. Everything was funny to him. And I, I know one thing I mentioned in my book, that uh, we were sitting up one night writing, and he was writing a song, and I was just sitting in there going, oh, wow, you know. Um, and he said uh, he had recently received a letter from a friend of his, a dear friend, I won't even mention who it is because he's somebody very famous, um, because he was trying to be more than just a novelty writer. He wanted to write, you know, songs like, and every time he would complain about people thought he was a novelty writer, I would mention husbands and wives, you know. It's my belief pride is, is the chief cause in the decline of the number of husbands and wives. And uh, anyway, we were sitting there one night, and he told me he had gotten this letter from a friend that said, sorry to hear your clown has died. And it just broke his heart. So, you know, it was really hard for him kind of being trapped in that. I, I think as he, uh, from that point on until he died, I think he kind of got out of that. In fact, my grandson, I was singing Robin Hood, riding through the Glen, the old television show, and he goes, that's not how it goes, because he had seen Robin Hood with Roger Miller's lyrics and 
songs, and he started singing Roger Miller's version. It was cracked me up, and I thought, yeah, that's that's good. Yeah, I always wish I had, I had met him. I really loved what he did, the, the River, you know, the Broadway oh, show. I know. I, yeah. What was, do you know what his thoughts are? I mean, did I he do have not. a sense of pride about Oh, yeah, I'm sure he something? was very proud of it. You know, I didn't see him at, at that point mm-hmm. in his life. Uh, we played one show together when I was pregnant with my son, Chris, and uh, uh, he was just wonderful. He was a great guy. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. That's really neat. You have lots of friends. We could be here all day talking about your friends. (laughs) I know. I was at a party one time, and I mentioned something, and then I mentioned something else, and this woman turned around and said, oh, you're quite the name dropper, aren't you? (laughs) And I said, well, at least I've got the names to drop. That's right. You know? (laughs) If you hung out with them, you could say it. Yeah, I get to say it. I've got stories. (laughs) I get to tell them. What about Joni Mitchell? I know you. you I love Joni. Well, um, I I became... I was trained as a record producer by a guy named Henry Louie. Henry was the main engineer at A&M Studios, and I was a background singer there. And he took me aside one day and he said, you've got really good ears, you should be producing records. And I thought, wow, I mean, this is like 1973 and 4. Uh, and he invited me to <clears throat> watch Joni Mitchell recording Court and Spark. And I was so enamored with Joni. I mean, I've been a huge fan of her since the very first. Um, and I just kind of like... I don't think I could handle it, you know. Well, a couple of days later, I was at the Ralph's Market, which is right around the corner from A&M, where A&M Studios was, and Joni was there. And she came up to me and said, oh, you know, Henry's been telling me all about you, and you should come to the studio. Why don't you come? With so I got in the car with her and rode around the corner to the studio, trying not to say anything stupid, you know, and, and got to watch her recording Court and Spark. Mm-hmm. And it was unbelievable. And her just her persona and the way she controlled and, and directed everything. It was great. And we from that point on, you know, I was able to just drop in whenever they were in the studio and working. So yeah. It was, and then years later I recorded a, a country version of You Turn Me On on the Radio, which was a hit for me. And she called, she and Henry called and and she said, um, well maybe you could turn some of my other songs into country hits like Pork Pie Hat. And it was nice. She really uh, enjoyed it. That's really neat. Yeah, I was kind of disappointed when they did the big tribute to Joni that I wasn't invited because, you know, I think I'm one of the few people that had a hit record with her songs. Definitely a hit country record mm-hmm. with her songs. But yeah, she was just, she's just such a genius. That's really neat. And she was such an inspiration to the women of my generation. You know, she, she is just marvelous. Well, speaking of that, you have been too, and you started the story about the pr- producing aspect. Maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I like I said, I started uh, training with Henry Louis, and Henry had recorded all the early Joni Mitchell albums up until he got really sick. Um, I think he, I think the Hissing of Summer Lawns might have been the last one, but um, he'd produced uh, Stephen Bishop and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, and and Mad Dogs and Englishmen with Joe Cocker and Minnie Riperton and just on and on and everybody that was anybody at that time was working with Henry Louis. So it was real an honor for me and I remember one thing he told me that's in my book too that we were listening to a playback of a vocal I'd done and he looked at me and he said are you singing at the same time that you're listening and I went yeah I guess I am he goes don't do that because it cancels out what you're supposed to be listening to. And from that point on, I started divorcing myself from the vocal 
And years later, I remember an engineer said, you always refer to yourself as her and she and never as you. Because once I sang the vocal, then I removed myself and became the producer of the album. So uh, Henry taught me a lot. I mean, that seems like a little thing, but it was a huge, huge deal. So uh, that was Gail Davies giving us a little bit of her background of uh, just how she got started with her passion and love for music. Uh, one of my one of my favorite parts of that segment was actually when she talked about her relationship with uh, Roger Miller and how they wanted to. He really wanted them to be the Porter Wagner and Dolly Parton next songwriting uh, duo. And uh, I think actually she fulfilled that for him because she wanted to go on and do her own thing just like Dolly did uh, while also still, you know, appreciating that relationship and and wanting to keep that. But she knew she needed to go on her own. So I thought that was very Dolly of her. (laughs) Definitely. And I think that's one of the things that's definitely coming out in this interview is her drive, her passion, but her gumption as well. You know, the uh, segment that followed the Roger Miller comment was um, her talking about Joni Mitchell, uh, which is kind of near and dear to us here. Uh, The three of us got to meet the one and only Joni Mitchell at the NAMM show in January in Anaheim 2020, uh, which was a wonderful experience. We didn't have a long conversation with her, but we got to have some great pictures taken. And just being in the same room with her was absolutely incredible. I mean, my memory of that was we were all anxious. We were excited. You know, somebody, you know, something's going to happen. We're waiting in the green room. And then it was like the atmosphere changed. And before I knew it, I felt it. And I looked over and there she was coming into the room. That was really, really special. And I'm really glad I experienced it with you guys. That was uh, really neat. What was that like for you, Ashley? Uh, I mean, very accurate description. It was almost like the air kind of like got sucked out of the room when everyone sort of realized that she was there. Uh, Also a great experience for my first NAMM show, working my first NAMM show, (laughs) was getting to come back and say, I got to meet Jodi Mitchell. Uh, Just such a sweet woman. And you could just tell that she was so honored to be there and just happy, uh, even though we were all kind of trying not to clamor over her, but we were. Uh, but yeah, just it was a fantastic experience. Uh, and I know, Mike, you really had a great time too. What was your thoughts on that? Yeah, just the presence in the room when she was in there. It's It was interesting, you know, just kind of like a person that's done so much in music and it, it just felt super weird to be in there in a good way. Um, and she was obviously there for the tech awards. She won the Les Paul Innovation Award uh, for 2020, um, and she was definitely deserving of that award. Um, a great experience for all of us and an experience that could only happen at a NAMM show. So moving forward with the Gail Davies interview, um, we're going to hear from her again. She's going to be talking about her move to Nashville and some of the amazing work that she did there. And then I moved to Nashville where... There were no female record producers. This is 19, let's see, 1976, I moved to Nashville. And people were like, the, I was blackballed by a lot of the musicians. And, uh, you know, the attitude was, I ain't going to have no girl telling me what to do. Um, so it was tough. It was really tough. And then once, uh, after I had problems with some of the musicians, I flew out to L.A. And I got Leland Scalar, who was an old friend of mine from James Taylor's band, uh, Billy Payne from Little Feet, Mike Baird from Journey, 
and Dean Parks from Steely Dan, and um, they all loved country music. So we recorded an album, and back in that time, um, an album called I'll Be There, it had four top ten hit records on it. And that was very unusual because you they would, in the day, the producer usually owned the publishing and he would do like one hit song and then all the rest of it would be, you know, mediocre songs that he owned the publishing on. Uh, but this album had, it was just a hit album. It's all hit songs. Um, and from that point on, everybody, the new crop of musicians that were coming to Nashville were like, stop me on the street and go, God, I'd love to record with you. Um, and, and when I did that stuff, I, I, J.D. Manis played steel guitar, and I would come back to town and overdubs uh, a lot of the stuff with Buddy Spiker and Lloyd Green, who had remained faithful and true and loyal to me when I was being blackballed. They said, well, I think she knows what she's doing, and she's damn good at it, you know? So I continued to use those two musicians, and occasionally Reggie Young, and, um, you know, made, um, I, I guess I made, like, 21 albums I've recorded and produced. Was there a moment where it, you felt like it was getting better or as far as... In the, Nashville? Yeah. As far, oh, yeah. Yeah, right away. Well, before I went to... Actually, I've skipped something here. Before I went to L.A. to record with Leland, I was in the middle of co-producing an album with Garth uh, Fundus, and he had the opportunity to work with Don Williams. So he went to work on the Don Williams album, and I was going to finish my album. And th that's when I started having problems with the musicians. It was half done. Mm -hmm. So I scrapped everything and went to Muscle Shoals and, and got the Swampers, you know, David Hood and, and Roger Hawkins and those boys. And they were fantastic to work with. They didn't have attitude at all. They were like, hey, let's just... Roger Hawkins and I stayed up one night till like 2 in the morning working on just the right sound for an African log drum. And nobody ever looked at the clock. Or The thing is, when I was recording the first... Uh, group of people here in Nashville was a lot of the old timers and they were used to coming in and knocking out the songs and then you know they do a 10 in the morning a, a 2 and then a 6 and then a 10 and then home again jiggity jig you know and it was like it was like a business it wasn't it, it wasn't the emotional content that I found in LA or in Muscle Shoals um, so you know I remember one time again I said I'm tired of hearing people you guys say it's good enough. You know, we do a take, and they go, oh, it sounds good enough to me. And I go, no, it's not good enough. I never heard that in Muscle Shoals. I never heard that in L.A. Uh, well, that old crop of musicians kind of disappeared, and within a couple of years, with by the early 80s, there was a whole new group of people coming in. Paul Franklin, I think I was the first producer to ever use Paul Franklin on a major project. And uh, Jerry Douglas. I was the first producer to ever use Jerry Douglas. And at the time, I was working uh, for MCA or no Warner Brothers. And then the, the head of the label said, well, you don't want to put a Dobro on there. It'll make it sound too bluegrass. And this is a time period, you know, when bluegrass had, you know, country music had divorced itself from bluegrass. This is 1980-81. This is before the big, you know, Roots revival. Um, so, you know, I was doing stuff that, you know, this is during the time, too, you know, when Barbara Mandrell ruled the, the airwaves, and I was doing remakes of Webb Pierce and Johnny and Jack, Poison Love, and, and Ray Price, I'll Be There, um, Carl Smith and the Leuven Brothers, you know, r bringing back songs that hadn't been, people who hadn't been com completely forgotten, really, 
So yeah, it, I made some enemies and made some waves for sure. <laughs> I did things my own way, and I'm very pleased with that. I don't, I don't produce stuff anymore. I did an album a year ago for a Japanese artist that I love named Yoshi Sakamoto. And my son talked me into doing it, and it was great fun because she sings Western swing and traditional country, and she's really good. And we recorded at Crystal Gale Studio with her son, Chris Gazimos, who's a fantastic engineer, fantastic producer, too. Um, but, yeah, it's been difficult. And I think the, the thing that's the most difficult is um, that I, I feel kind of forgotten. You know, I mean, I don't get many opportunities like this to talk about what I had done. Um, the gatekeepers have kind of, you know, pushed me out of... If you pick up an encyclopedia of country music, you'll see it'll jump from Charlie Daniels to Linda Davis with no mention of me whatsoever. So, you know, I've pretty much been written out of the history of country music. And I was. People say, well, you're one of the first female producer. I was the first female record producer. I was the first person to produce top 40 hit records that had my name on them as the producer. Something to be proud of. I am proud of it. And I hope that uh, every once in a while I get to talk to, you know, groups. Uh, I went up to Berkeley uh, in Boston two times. I've gone up there and talked with different classes about production and the girls that are, you know, I say, how many of you want to be producers? And all their hands go up. And then the boys, you know, I'll say, don't be intimidated. Don't think that you have to do everything as well as every musician. You will never play bass better than Willie Weeks. <laughs> I don't think so. You know, there, there are certain people that you have to know who to hire. You don't have to do their job. You just know how to hire the right people and put them together. And I said, and don't think you have to know everything. The guys don't know everything. They just fake it better. They just pretend, you know. So, you know, don't over try to overachieve. You're building a house. You're the contractor. Hire a plumber. Hire a painter. And when it's done, you turn the house over to the owner. That's exactly what you're doing when you produce an album. So when you first started out, were there go-to engineers for you? That was a tough one because uh, <clears throat> a lot of the engineers had the same attitude that they knew more than I did. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I went through a couple of engineers, had trouble with, and landed on a few that I really loved. Gene Eichelberger was just the best. Uh, Craig White, who still works with uh, Curb Studios. Um, yeah, it's hard to, it was hard to find a great engineer that would listen. Because it's their job to facilitate what you want, not to tell you what you, what they think you should have. And uh, I know enough, and I have ears enough. I did a project out in L.A. with Bill Schnee that I was co-producing with Leland Scalar. And I remember we were listening to the tracks through, and every time they'd go through, I'd go, what is that? They go, nothing. What is, what is that? You know. Finally, we broke down all the tracks and found that a guitar amp had just had feedback for one second, just went beep, and nobody else heard it. Nobody heard it. So I said, well, yeah, I've got ears. <laughs> That's really cool. I'm glad you share that with me because I think it is important that we document that. And that's part of the reason I wanted to meet with you because that is an important part of history. And I think people need to recognize that it needed to change. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely time. You know, it was happening in L.A. already, you know. And, and in, strangely enough, in Muscle Shoals, you had the Swampers 
backing Barbara Streisand and Eddie James and Aretha Franklin and you know and they had no trouble working with with a female when but in Nashville it was like my old my manager used to say when he would land in Nashville he would set his watch back 50 years um, because it was like in the early 70s there was still that feeling of antebellum in the air you know it was still had a southern feeling which I love don't get me wrong I love the south I love to be a southern girl um, but it was barefoot pregnant and in the vocal booth is what it was. Women didn't have much say and I, re I remember one time when I was doing uh, one of those shows uh, where all a whole bunch of people used the same band and I watched, I brought my guitar, sat it down and I watched as the guys would get up and they'd say, well what I want is this, you know, and they'd talk to the band and the band would listen. But when the girls were women were supposed to do their part. They would have a manager, producer, or um, husband, whatever, with them. And they would say something, and then he'd say, well, what she would like is. And they didn't speak directly to the band. And when it came my turn, I picked up my guitar, I took, took my guitar out, and, and the song we were going to do faded on the album, but I wanted to show them the ending, and they just bristled. I mean, they were just, whoo, whoo, she's telling us what to do. Well, I wrote the damn song, and I produced the damn album, so shut up and listen. And I was never disrespectful. I always, always, you know, thank you for backing me, you know, appreciative, but, you know, they didn't like it. They didn't like it at all. So that was kind of tough. And after a few years, as I got older, it got a lot easier. I have no trouble in the studio now. You know, I'm 71 years old, and I say, I'll just push the button and say, no, that isn't, that. we're not going that direction. Thanks, but no thanks. We're not doing that. And I have no problem at all. And I have a great bunch of musicians to work with all the time. I work with the best. I'm kind of curious about some of the songs that, that you wrote that you recorded like, um, well, the first couple of big ones, Bucket of the South and things like that. Did, yeah. Were you producing those too? Did you have a say in how the music was being... I produced all but the first album. Oh, okay. The first album was produced by a guy named Tommy West, and we did not get along at all. Uh, he was very disrespectful. At one point, he took my guitar out of my hands to play Grandma's song for the band. And I was furious. And I, we were outside talking about it, and I said, I'm capable of playing my own songs. And he said, I don't think these guys want a woman telling them what to do. I said, well, then get different guys. Find some other guys if they can't handle that. Because, you know, I'd come from L.A. where I was working with people that were, you know, just fine. Just fine with that. Uh, but here, it was it was really different. Like I said, Leland Scalar said, when I came to Nashville, women would, were barefoot pregnant and in the vocal booth. So, um, we didn't get along well at all, and I vowed that I would never let anyone produce me again. And that's, you know, I have to give him that, you know. He pushed me forward to doing something that has, you know, changed my life. So Bunker to the South is a very important song for me. It was written about my family. I was driving down from L.A. to San Antonio, Texas to meet my uh, birth father, who was with the, was a, with the United States Air Force. Was a sergeant in the Air Force, and he had another family. And as I was riding along, I was singing, I'm taking my bucket, the car, down to the south, going to fill it up with memories, bring it on back. And it was, strangely enough, recorded by a girl named Ava Barber. And they uh, called my publisher and said, we'd like to change uh, Oklahoma to Tennessee. And I thought, wow. 
because she's from Tennessee. And I said, well, okay. doesn't rhyme, but okay. And then they called back and said, she wants to change the names of all your relatives to hers. And I said, no, no. If she wants a song about her family, she have to write it herself. So they ended up recording the song. And when I got the record, I was so disappointed. They'd cut out the entire last verse which was really important because it says, my dad was quite a guitar man, picking with his country band. He trifled with a woman. Lord, it broke my mama's heart. Lawrence Welk would not let his artist sing trifled because to him that was a dirty word. And he wouldn't let her sing about a man leaving his wife, cheating on his wife. Well, that's what the song was about. So by the time I got it, uh, the, the record, it had been reduced to a little radio ditty, take my bucket down to the south, you know, what I mean, they took all the guts and life out of it and, and changed the words and cut out the last verse, so I wasn't pleased. So I re-recorded it, and it's a song that I do in all my shows. It's my big showstopper because I get to really break it down and talk to people about it. That's neat. Yeah. Is there a story behind uh, someone's looking Yes, there is. I was sitting in L.A. My boyfriend at the time was a guy named Rick Tassin. He was a drummer, and uh, we, we grew up in the same town, Bremerton, Washington, Port Orchard area, across the bay from Seattle. And uh, he, we'd had a big argument, and he had left me and gone back to Seattle. So I'm sitting alone in my apartment in L.A. and feeling sorry for myself. And I just came to me, you know, why are you feeling sorry for yourself? Because somewhere, you know, there's someone looking for someone like you. And that became the, imp the, um, you know, the inspiration for the song. Hmm. That's really neat. What did your brother think of your songwriting? <laughs> well, it's pretty hard when your brother is like a megastar songwriter and you start trying to write songs. And I remember one time he brought Paul Williams to my house. They'd both been out drinking. And, you know... Paul wrote, uh, We've Only Just Begun, and uh, all just, you know, slew of fantastic songs. And uh, I'd just written this horrible, horrible song called Learn to Love. It was so bad. And uh, I told Paul, I said, yeah, I'm learning how to write songs. And my brother just went, oh, God. <laughs> oh, no. And he said, well, play it for me. And I took my guitar out and I played it. And Paul was so cool, even though he was completely, you know, stoned. He gave me the best advice I've ever had. He said, Gail, he said, words are like pegs. You can't hammer them into round holes. Square, square pegs, you can't rammer. And I thought, well, what did he mean? And then I realized that I had to make the words flow with the music so it all sounded natural. It was the best advice anyone ever gave me. And um, Ron, you know, Ron tolerated my songwriting while I was learning. But then one day I, I went to... Uh, play a gig with a guy named Tom Pacheco. I had played sing a background on his album at the at the bottom line in New York. We were opening for J.D. Souther. And I had a terrible crush on J.D. He didn't even notice me. And I had this make-believe thing called the song about um, breaking up with somebody. It's called What Can I Say It's Over, Baby Bye Bye. And I, I wrote it after the show and I flew back to L.A. and I was playing it for my brother. I remember so well he was laying on the couch smoking a cigarette and he just slowly sat up while I was playing it. And he went, did you write that by yourself? And I said, yeah. He goes, that is a great song, sis. He said, that's a great song. And that was when I knew I had cleared the bar and that I was a real songwriter because I impressed my brother with, what can I say? Mm -hmm. So that was it. And he went on to be very supportive. I wrote a song which he said was one of his all-time favorite songs called Not a Day Goes By. 
that I don't think of you. Um, yeah, he was very supportive from that point on. As we continue on with this great interview uh, from 2019 with Gail Davies for the NAM Oral History Program, I'm reminded of her uh, album that she kind of alluded to but didn't talk a whole lot about. When she was with MCA in 1989, she produced a album of songs that she completely wrote by herself. So she wrote and produced that entire album called Pretty Words. And that is definitely worth a listen to all of you listening to this saying, okay, what was her music like outside of some of the commercial success that she had? Of course, the album before that, The Game, which we mentioned, had Blue Heartache and Like Strangers, and those were big hits and recorded by all kinds of different people who had all kinds of different spin on the melody and and the lyrics and, and the shows sort of the... the um, songwriting prowess that she certainly has. But the pretty words to me is a really great way of just listening to her, you know, sort of separating out everything else that the songs could be and listening to the songs that she wanted them to be. And um, I definitely think that's worth a listen to. A little bit early on uh, in that last segment, she also talked about uh, Paul Williams, which uh, is a great reminder of the wonderful interview that we had with him. Mike, I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners where they could go to listen to that segment. Sure. If you'd like to see any of the videos uh, that we have of these interviews, you can head over to namm.org. That's nam.org slash library, and we have the full collection there. So moving forward with this Gail Davies interview, we are going to be hearing from Gail again, talking about going back to L.A., um, some work in A&M studio that she did, uh, and her connection with Frank Zappa. We didn't talk too much about your background singing. You've mentioned it, but I mean, there is an awful lot of uh, your voice out there. <laughs> yeah, I've gotten to uh, sing with some wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, I lived like three blocks from the NM Studios. I lived on Formosa and Sunset. So I would get calls, and Henry Louis was such a champion for me. I was a struggling songwriter, and he always kept my phone number close by. And if something came up, somebody needed something, he would call. And I could, I would wake up at three o'clock in the morning, get my clothes on and run over and sing on some project. Well, one night I got this call, woke me up, and it was this really low, gravelly voice saying, Gail Davies, I need you to, do you have a tambourine? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, I need you to get your butt over here and sing on uh, harmony and play your tambourine. And it was Hoyt Axton. So uh, I became really good buddies with Hoyt. And a lot of the girls that were singing with him, uh, Katie Moffat and... Uh, Ronnie Blakely, uh, Renee Armand, you know, I mean, it was a real great group of, of singers. And he wanted me to go on the road with him, but I didn't want to go because I wanted to stay and learn everything I could from Henry Louis about producing records. So that's that was kind of my uh, thing, being down the street from A&M, you know, people calling and saying, can you come sing on this? And Jimmy Bowen one time called me uh I'd been on a tour with Glenn Campbell, and we'd gotten to be good friends. And he called, and he said, uh, I'm, I'm producing this album on Glenn Campbell, and uh, he specifically asked for you to sing background vocals. And I said, you know, I'm not a background singer anymore, Bowen. I don't really want to do that. And he goes, he got really pissed off. He goes, this is Glenn Campbell. God damn it, get your ass over here. You know, and I was like, okay. <laughs> I was on his label, you know, so I came down. And it was great because I, it didn't I thought it was going to be a group, but it was just me and Glenn. 
singing the background vocals. It was wonderful. And he was so good. And he would turn the, the uh, band off and it would, so we could just hear the leakage of the band and our vocals were perfect. They had to be perfect. And so from then on, whenever I would be recording something, I'd say, uh, you know, get rid of the back of the band. I just want to hear the vocals. And I've done, and I call it the Glenn Campbell style of recording so that you could hear every single note that you were doing. And we had a ball. We just had a ball. He was the best, best guy to work with. So talented, so talented. And when we were, I remember when we were on tour one night, um, uh, I came off stage and I, I was getting an encore, standing ovation. People were screaming and Glenn was standing there with his guitar and, and his band behind him and he goes, well, you know, uh, Davies, nobody likes an opening act that's too good. <laughs> you know? And then he said, go on back out there because they wanted to have an encore and he, he let me do it. Mm. I said, remember, nobody likes an opening act that's too good. <laughs> we had a lot of fun. And, you know, I've developed a theory that it's a little unfortunate that, you know, his stardom, especially with the hit record, sort of eclipsed his musicianship. Oh, yeah. I mean, I hope to God that everybody knows, and if they don't, I will tell you, that, you know, he's the wrecking crew. He's the guy in the wrecking crew. And the, all those wonderful uh, Monkeys records and, you know, working with Carol Kay and... Yeah, he was a phenomenal guitar player. And you know, even towards the end, uh, Marty, I heard Marty Stewart saying that he had taken a guitar to, to, he was going to do some pictures. Glenn's wife wanted some pictures of her and Glenn. And so he, he took this guitar along kind of as a prop and he said, and Glenn took it and just, even though he was suffering from Alzheimer's, he couldn't remember much, he just started playing it. Just playing it again, you know. He was there. He could still play. For a while, and then you know he had to set it down. But yeah, he was an incredible musician and a funny guy. I mean, he was right up there with Roger Miller. He was a funny guy. What's your connection with Frank Zappa? <laughs> Very little, actually. People have made a lot more of it than it really is. Uh, I was singing with the Midnight Band at the Troubadour, and Frank came in. He was sitting right in the front row, and I would end my set. I was singing rock and roll then, not country. By, by dropping to my knees and screaming this highest note of this song, Randy Newman song called Guilty. I'm guilty. You know, I just go, ah, you know, and he just loved it. I mean, he was on his feet and screaming. And, and he asked me um, if I would come to uh, a band practice that he was putting together a band to go on tour to Europe. But I'd already committed to tour with Roger Miller. It was right during that same time. And I went to the rehearsal because I, I just had to, was Frank Zappa, you know, and it was right down there on Sunset Boulevard and um, Rehearsal Hall, and it was fantastic. He would he would like play notes, uh, play a lick on the guitar, and then ask me to sing it back note for note, and I could. And he thought that was really cool, uh, and he was going to produce this movie he wanted me to be in. Well, it's in my book; people can read about it. He wanted me to be in this movie about this woman that lands on this planet that's inhabited by s spiders. <laughs> it, was, it was weird, even for Frank Zappa. Uh, but anyway, I ended up, that was about the only, those two occasions were the only time I spent with Frank Zappa. Pretty funny. It was, it was. <laughs> and he was so cool. I thought, well, Zappa, you know, he's going to be a druggie. And, but he wasn't. He was straight. He didn't drink. He didn't do drugs. And during the rehearsal, his wife, whose name was also Gail, showed up with their children. Um, you know, and they were wild. They were just all over everything and playing the drums and jumping off the chairs. And he was a family man. He was a really solid family man. Hmm. That's really cool.
I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, about your gear. Did you have a go-to make and model guitar that you played? I have always played Martins. Well, that's not true. I, I, I primarily play Martin guitars, but there's a lot of videos out there that I'm playing an Epiphone or I'm playing a this or that. And my son is Chris Scruggs, you know Chris, is always saying, what happened to that guitar, Mom? Just, would you, why did you sell that guitar? You know, every time he sees a video that I'm playing a different guitar. But I always came back to the Martin. Uh, the Martin D28 that I bought in a pawn shop in Santa Monica in 19, let's see, 1971 or two, uh, is the one I played almost constantly. But then about 25 years ago, I ran, I, I was at Gruen's, George Gruen's guitar shop, and I saw this little 0018, this beautiful little guitar, but somebody had abused it badly. It was a, a 51, uh, and they had taken it to the beach, and it had sand in it, you know, and they tried to refinish it and had a nail drilled in the top, you know, to hang it up on a, it was awful. And uh, I said, how much do you want for this? And the guy said, 350 bucks. I said, okay, I'll take it. So I took that. As I'm going out the door, George is coming after me saying, I, I think there's been a mistake. And I said, yeah, you made it. Because it, I just played one chord. I just played an open E chord and just went, oh my God, this is a beautiful instrument. And I took it and had it redone and refinished. And I played that for, you know, 20 something years. And then when I turned uh, 65, we went to tour the Martin factory, my husband Rob Price and my son and I and played a show in, up there at the Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And I was playing this guitar and I said, oh, I love this guitar. And Chris said, well, you, you should keep it, Mom. And I goes, I can't afford this. He goes, it's okay, it's already paid for. And he bought me the guitar for my birthday. Wow. So I have another D, uh, 0018 new Martin guitar that sounds fantastic. So. Those are my guitars. Chris owns the D28. I gave him that when he turned 18. So I just have those two old Martins hanging on the wall. And you are listening to the Music History Project uh, interview with Gail Davies back in uh, 2019. Uh, and something she mentioned in the beginning of, of this, uh, her interview was her brother Ron, who she, you know, Hold near, holds near and dear to her heart and uh, really was an amazing unsung uh, piece in the music industry of great songwriter. Uh, and she mentioned in the beginning also how she did a tribute album uh, in his honor. And you'll see that that's kind of a theme that runs through uh, this whole interview of her really wanting to uh, honor and tribute to and give a tribute to the people that have really made a difference in her musical career and life, uh, whether it be her brother Ron or uh, Webb Pierce, which we'll be hearing about in a little bit, uh, and just, you know, really wanting to to honor them and to celebrate them. Yeah, you know, she has a real heart and a real love for the people who came before her, the people who inspired her, like her brother and and Webb Pierce and, and Glenn Campbell and so many of the others, Joni Mitchell and so on. And, and that's certainly the thread throughout this whole interview, isn't it? She's just really in awe of them and really wants to respect their music. And in a lot of cases during her career has uh, paid tribute to them in various ways. Uh, the, probably the best example of that is her brother. Uh, you know, Ron was uh, born in 1946 
He passed away in 2003 of a heart attack in his home in Nashville. And uh, 10 years later, in 2013, she produced the album Unsung Hero, a tribute to the music of Ron Davies, and brought in so many of her friends and so many of his friends and admirers who sang his songs on that album. I highly recommend you checking that one out. Uh, it, the love for a brother is very, very well uh, represented in, in that album, for sure. You know, one of the things that always struck me about Ron is he was a bit of an unsung hero, even though he had hits, uh, several of which were recorded by the likes of, oh my gosh, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band recorded, of course, Bowie, uh, George Jones. Uh, some of those hits were Long Hard Climb, Cold Hard Truth, and probably his biggest one that most of us have heard is It Ain't Easy. And... And yet, uh, she still called him an unsung hero. And I think it's because so many of his efforts between those hits were things that were sort of forgotten or not as well popularized. But yet, when you look at him through her eyes on that album, The Unsung Hero, you really can hear that talent. You really can hear things in a different light that maybe were originally produced for commercial success were now being produced to honor him and his contributions to music. And it's really a fascinating and eye-opening experience. So with that, let's go into this final segment of Gail Davies' 2019 interview. She's first going to be talking about her brother Jim, um, also her son, and then she's going to go into talking about Webb Pierce. I didn't get to ask you about your, your other brother, Jim. Did, was he in the music Jimmy, Yeah, Jimmy died very young. He was killed by a drunken driver with his, in a car wreck with his wife and two little boys. Um, one of them has permanent brain damage, and the other one you know, is in his 50s now. Uh, but Jimmy uh, was a really good singer, and he could dance like James Brown. And whenever he had a band called the Journeyman, uh, and whenever the, he would play, you know, like all the black kids in town would come because he just to watch him dance. I mean, he could do the California drop and spin around and come up, you know, just he was fantastic. Uh, and he was going to medical school. He was two weeks from graduating when he was killed by a drunk driver. Yeah, I still, I'm still not over it. That was 1972. And, uh, Sadly, I was there and witnessed the whole thing, so it was pretty rough. Mm, it was so pretty sorry. terrible. But he was a beautiful, beautiful boy. And my son reminds me a lot of him, my brother. And that was the next thing I was going to ask you about your, your son. What did you, have you seen as far as his passion for music? And did you detect it right away? No, because he started off being an artist. I have notebooks full of his artwork, which is really good for a little kid. When he was about, and I always kept a guitar. That D28 sitting in the corner, if he ever wanted it, it was there. Uh, and one day he just said, would you teach me how to play the guitar? So I taught him three or four chords. And next thing I knew, I walked by his bedroom, and he's in there playing a Nirvana song. And I said, "How did? where did you learn that? He goes, it was on the radio. I said, I know, but how did you? He goes, it was on the radio, Mom. And he just figured it out. And from then on, it was like, like my brother Ronnie. He was just gone. And I remember when he was born, he had those same long, beautiful fingers like my brother Ronnie. And I told my girlfriend, Mary Pacheco, who was there at the delivery, I said, he's going to be a guitarist. He's going to be it. And so he, he just took off. And I mean, his knowledge of instruments... I, I, recently, uh, he got a call. 
he, he's touring with Marty Stewart, but he got a call from Ry Cooter, wanted him to go on tour with him. And of course, Marty doesn't accept subs, so he couldn't do it. But um, yeah, he's got, he has fans of, with people like Ry. Uh, yeah, he's, and his knowledge of, of not only country music, but punk rock and, you know, it's unbelievable. He's a walking encyclopedia of, of music. That's really neat. This is awesome. You know, I could be here all day, but I want to be <laughs> respectful of your time, too. I have nothing else to do. <laughs> you know, I'm a nana. I'm nana. All I do that's important in my life right now is, is watch my grandson. Not really doing anything else. Well, then, if that's the case, I do have one other area that I wanted to kind of bring up, and that is I know that you're also a fan of music. You know, you talk about Webb Pierce and, you know, listening to those mu that music early on. I should have on. brought you a copy of the Webb Pierce tribute. Have you got I, that? I read about it, but I haven't oh, heard it. Yeah. I'll, I'll send you a copy, because that's, that's really, that was fun. That was a lot of fun. Did you ever get to meet him? Yeah, a couple of times. He was a character. In my book, I talk about uh, Jody Payne, who played guitar with Willie Nelson, was a good friend of mine. And they called one time uh, years ago and said, hey, we're playing the Tennessee Fair. Do you want to come hang out? And I said, yeah, sure. So I went out to the fair, and they were eating. Uh, Willie and his wife, Connie, at the time were uh, having dinner. It was Kentucky Fried Chicken or something, and Jody on the bus. And So I went on the bus, and I was having dinner with them. And the road manager came on and said, uh, uh, Willie, he said, um, Mr. Pierce is outside. He said, do you want to see him now or wait till later? And Willie said, oh, no, bring him on, on the bus. And he came on the bus, and he looked around. And I'm like, oh, my God, Webb Pierce. You know, to Willie Nelson, I'm going, oh, my God, Webb Pierce. I said, the Webb Pierce? And he goes, yep, that would be the one. Um, so Webb came on the bus, and the first thing out of his mouth, they hugged each other, and he goes, I can't believe there's thousands of kids out there waiting to hear some damn hippie that can't even sing in tune. And Willie just threw his arms around Webb and said, yeah, it's good to see you too, Webb. Because, you know, Willie used to play bass in Webb's band. So he never could really take him seriously as an artist, I guess. That was a roadblock for him. And then I saw him another time before that uh, at the CNA Awards. And this is early, early on, probably late 70s. And I had recorded a song called uh, No Love Have I. was my first hit record. It was a Webb Pierce hit, too. And I was introduced to him, and I was like, oh, my God. I said, I recorded your song, No Love of I. And he just casually said, well, I hope it does as well for you as it did for me, and turned around and walked off. <laughs> well, when I did the, um, the tribute album to him, I became good friends with his widow, Audrey, and his daughter, Deborah, who has since passed away. And Audrey <clears throat> was so thankful that she gave my son one of Webb's very first nudie suits, which he still has. <laughs> And he has a hat from Carl Smith that Carl gave him when he graduated from high school and a ring from Farron Young. I mean, he's, wow. he's a lucky kid. He's, got to, he's gotten to meet, meet the legends before they slipped away. So what inspired you? I mean, obviously his music, but how did the project come off the ground? Well, he wasn't in the Country Music Hall of Fame. And somebody had told me about that, and I was really annoyed. And I just woke up one morning, and I just turned to my husband, and I said, I'm going to produce a tribute album to Webb Pierce to get him in the Country Music Hall of Fame. And I said, I'm going to get all, call all my friends to be on it. And, and he said, well, you know, that's, that'll, that would be impossible. And I said, and I remember, don't tell me I can't fly until I'm in the air. 
And I had just enough money in my savings account to start the project. And I called Willie on the golf course. I called George Jones at home. I called all my, Emmylou Harris came up to me <clears throat> at the Hall of Fame. Uh, we were both doing some kind of thing there. And she goes, I heard you're doing a Webb Pierce tribute. I want to sing Wondering. And I said, absolutely. So, you know, it just came together. I picked the songs I thought fit the artist. You know, like uh, Charlie Pride sang, um, uh, God, my mind just went blank. I picked the song that I thought was right for him. Originally, it was going to be sung by Lucinda Williams, but she couldn't get it together. And I got the Jordanaires to come and sing their original parts. I got um, Dale Watson, who's one of my favorite, favorite artists. And it was just, it was, a, it was a big party. It was a big, fun party. And it, it was challenging because I had to change my uh, style, my production technique with each artist. They were coming in like one every hour or two. So, you know, it's very different to work with Emmy Lou than it is to work with Ro Robbie Folks. Mm. You know, so I could, would adjust according to who I was working with. So that was a challenge. And I hung a sign on the door that said, please check your ego at the front door. You know, so that everybody was brilliant. I mean, I said, you get like maybe two or three shots at your vocal and that's it. And Crystal Gale said that made her really nervous, but she came in and just nailed it first time. And I went, why? What? You know, you're fabulous. So, uh, yeah, it was a big party. It's a lot of fun. Sounds like it. That's the cool. only regret I have is I wish I'd gotten Marty Stewart to be on it. That would have been perfect. It's the only artist I didn't get. So the footnote is, is Webb Pierce in the Country Music Hall of Fame? He was. That year he was inducted. <laughs> and Audrey invited me to go with her family. Mm -hmm. So I was able to be wow. there and see it. And it was the night that they inducted like about 15 or 16 artists. It was hilarious because they inducted the Everly Brothers. Only one of them showed up. <laughs> uh, Don wouldn't come. Phil accepted for them. And... Uh, Sam, uh, what's his, Sam Phillips got up drunk, <laughs> drunk, and was hilarious. He was hilarious. He was talking about Elvis and Carl Perkins and all those. Johnny Cash, he goes, I knew them boys had it in them to be great. I just, they needed me to reach up their ass and pull it out. You know, and right in the front sitting these little old ladies with their perfectly coffered hairdos, you know, and they're just like going, shock, shock. But by that time in the night, everyone had been drinking a lot. And I heard, I heard that Marty Stewart told them, said, don't put Sam Phillips at the end of the acceptance, so you'll, you'll regret it. But they did. And he was slammed, you know. He was slammed. It was a fun night. It was a really fun night. That's neat. I'm so proud of that project. That's really cool. I know you also admire the, the, uh, the sidemen, as we sometimes call them, the studio musicians. And um, I wonder your impression of the Musicians Hall of Fame. I haven't been there yet, but I saw a show on it last. Uh, Joe Chambers was interviewing somebody the other night, and I thought, I need to get down there, check it out, you know. I just don't get out much. Mm. I, I pretty much keep to myself. I perform like maybe twice a year. I used to go to Europe a lot, but uh, two years ago I went, and it wasn't very, very productive. Country music in Europe has kind of dried up, hmm. so I haven't been back. My husband, ex-husband now, but my best friend, Rob Price, plays with Crystal Gale, and he's British. He's from Wales, born and raised in Buckley, Wales. So we used to go over there every year, sometimes twice a year, visit with the family, play some gigs, 
Uh, but it's just it's not the way it used to be, and they're going through so much trouble with mm. the Brexit and everything. So I'm, I played the Bluebird. Well, I played the Station Inn on my 70th birthday, which was wonderful. Emmy Lou came. Um, Susie Boggess got up and sang. Mandy Barnett, The Whites, uh, Rod, Ranger Doug. Uh, it, it was just a, Rhonda Vincent. It was an incredible night. And uh, all my friends came from as far away as Japan and England and Seattle and L.A. Some of the guys that played in Wild Choir showed up. Mm. So it was really, it was a lot of fun. That's awesome. the, that was last year. And then this year I've only played one time at the Bluebird. So I don't perform much anymore. What a fantastic opportunity that was. I was just remembering what... Uh, uh, the folks that helped us get that interview together, uh, thanks to all of those uh, that uh, support this program and give us the opportunities to document amazing stories like that. Um, just what a great contributor to the music industry. I also loved her thoughts about uh, her son, Chris, uh, whose paternal grandfather is Earl Scruggs, the great uh, banjo player that we've gotten to uh, interview over the years. And, um, and she also made a comment about Webb Pierce that I just wanted to, to say that that tribute album is also definitely worth listening to. Uh, Webb is also sort of an un, uh, unknown artist these days, but back in the day, uh, during the honky-tonk period of singers uh, of the 1950s, he had a string of hits. Uh, in the Jailhouse Now, which a lot of people know because of that recent movie, uh, Slowly, 1954, um, and There Stands the Glass, uh, just some amazing recordings of that period of sort of country, western, honky-tonk music. And uh, I really appreciate the fact that Gail took the uh, opportunity to pay tribute to him. So that will wrap up our uh, podcast for today. I guess you'll be hearing from us in two weeks. Thanks so much for tuning in. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.